Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're... um this is uh, our continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. Mark, the 10th chapter, verses 35 to 45. It's a story that we have in both Mark and Matthew. Um, Luke chooses not really to tell the story. And it's a little bit confusing when we find it in the two Gospels because the version of the story is different in both. The, the issue is the same. But in this gospel, this is a story of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approaching Jesus and saying to him, we want you to do us a favor. And he said, what is it you want us to do for you? And they said, to allow us to sit one at your right and the other and your left in in your glory. Now, Matthew does the same thing, but instead of going through the embarrassment of being the two of the closest disciples to Jesus, which Mark has no problem with, um, Matthew does back away a little bit and says, no, it wasn't them, it was their mother that did that. Whatever it is, it shows an uneasiness among the evangelists to kind of implicate the closest of the disciples in kind of a request that has all sorts of things wrong with it. It's not just simply self-seeking, it's not just simply ambitious, it's disrespectful also, and it's, it's, it very honestly also is ignorant because the kingdom of God is not of this world, and yet everything they talk about in that, they say, in your glory. But still, in their minds, the kingdom of God in their glory that they perceive is the glory of David, the glory of Solomon. In other words, it has a way of cutting off the uh, the future of Christianity, of cutting off the eschatological dimensions of Christianity and kind of anchoring and hammering it down in, into the existential world of our own personal experience. Jesus says to them, he kind of corrects them, and he says to them, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I must drink or be baptized with a baptism with which I must be baptized? And so he pulls in then events that are going to unfold in his life. And he says to them, I have to handle these things. Can you handle these things? And they, of course, very glibly say, oh, yes, we can, because they don't know what he's talking about. And so then Jesus said to them, well, you, you, you will drink it, and you will have the baptism. But as far as how things work out in the kingdom of heaven, that's actually not mine to grant, because then... We are in the person and in the presence of the Father, who is the source of all things, all order, all being. And in that, everything is as he wills, as he organizes, as he himself emanates into being. So that what has happened here then? The, the, we're, we're, we're ten chapters into the Gospel of Mark, and, and still the disciples have not really grasped what the kingdom of God is all about, what the Messiah is all about. And we might say that as well. Why didn't they figure it out at that time? And then we might turn around and ask ourselves in a a funny sort of way, well, how long have we been disciples of Christ? How long have we been Christian? And how much into this world is the the faith that, that we propose, the faith that we carry? You know, and, and, and don't say, and I say, say nothing at all about the idea 
that certainly as Christians in the midst of the world, we are to evangelize, but we are also to do good. And to do good certainly involves the bigger pictures of trying to create a just, a good society, a, a holy society, and so forth. But as we move more and more into the contemporary age and Christian news begins to reflect more and more secular news, and we find out that instead of the, you know, the, uh, the, the religious news media, instead of trying to unfold and trying to open for us the mysteries of the proclamation of Jesus Christ, we find it becoming increasingly just a political mirror of the world in which we live. And this politicization, therefore, and there are those who say this is the way it should be, but this politicization is precisely the flaw of James and John, because they are the ones who think that they have some kind of a sense of what it means to, um, to be in the kingdom of God. And what it means to be in the kingdom of God has to do with their expectations for how the, the messianic message and the messianic work is going to t- play itself out in the world in which they experience and in the world in which they live. We cannot get caught up in this. We can't say, oh, it doesn't matter, you know, that we're pacifists, we're indifferent. Um, we, we can just withdraw from the society. We can go off the grid and, you know... Christianity has always lived in the, in, the, in the rough and tumble of reality ever since the very beginning, ever since the crucifixion of the Lord, and ever since the confrontations between Jesus Christ and the, and the, uh, and the Pharisees, that it is not a place of refuge in the midst of the world as far as our existential lives are concerned. The refuge of Christianity is deep in the human soul with the conviction and the belief that God will take care of all things and bring us and those whom we love and care for eventually um, in, into, into his kingdom, into the kingdom of eternal peace and eternal happiness. The idea that Jesus lived his life as a sacrifice for many is a reflection of how the Christian might think of living their lives too, not in creating a utopian society, not in creating something, the perfect world in which we live, but that in in creating a place deep inside the human person where there can be peace and hope and confidence in the ultimate triumph of good over evil, in the ultimate triumph of the Messiah over the powers of evil, the powers of Satan. And I think that this is a struggle that we all have. No human person who loves other people, who loves another person, has not in some way been willing to pay a price to suffer for that person. And that no matter how terrible the suffering might be that might be offered up for the well-being of that person, or whether just being and or whether just loving them is itself the cross because of the response that they get and the lack of emotional fulfillment they might get. In some way, shape, or form, Christianity is a rough road. The peace of Christianity comes not in our daily lives all the time, not in things working out the way we want them to work out, but the peace of Christianity comes from the assurance of the indwelling of the Trinity, of the indwelling of the Lord. 
The peace of Christianity comes from the love that we feel from those from whom we share the faith. And the peace of Christianity comes from the presence of Christ within us, especially through the sacrificial and the sacramental life of the church. So that John and, and James, they're, they're not foreigners to our experience. Um, we all kind of get into the John's and James mode every once in a while. Take care of me, Lord. Get me out of this mess. Um, do something good for me. Because, you know, enough is enough. I've, had, I've, had, I've suffered enough. I'm, I'm sad enough. I'm sorry enough. I've tried hard enough. And everything didn't really work out the way I wanted it to. Well, everything didn't really work out the way James and John wanted it to either, did they? And that's the point of this first part of the gospel. Jesus said, when you ask me, when you ask me for these kinds of things, know what you're asking for. Know that if you say, you know, I want to, I want to give of myself to another, more of you might be extracted than you think you really cared to give in the first place. But it is also what cements the relationship and is also what creates healing in the soul, not only your own soul, but in the soul of others. Now, even within our own situation, saying, well, you know, I want to be... Um, I want to be further ahead in the game. I, I, I want to, um, I, I kind of want that kind of inner peace that the great saints had. Well, you know, a lot of the great saints did not have that inner peace that we're looking for. They had struggle. And they had struggle which they offered up for the people they served and which they offered up for the church. And certainly the church needs our sacrifices. It needs our willingness to give up of ourselves for the sake of its holiness and its well-being today. Because we certainly are in great turmoil. Has the church ever been and the world ever been in great turmoil before? Well, it certainly has. Might it do so again? Well, it certainly might. Who knows? But the fact is, when we cast our lot with the Lord in the modern day, we face trial after trial after trial and disappointment after disappointment after disappointment, and failure of hopes and dreams after failure of hopes and dreams. But all of this aside, all of this strange dimensionality of our Christian faith, and then we hear, when the other ten heard this, they began to feel indignant with James and John. So Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that among the pagans their so-called rulers lorded over them? And their great men make their authority felt. This is not how not to happen among you. Anyone who wants to become great among you must be your servant. And anyone who wants to be first among you must be slave to all. For the Son of Man himself did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So... Now that we've gone through all of this confusion about what does it mean to love the Lord, what does it mean to follow the Lord, how do I gauge my success as a believer, how do I restrain my unrealistic hopes, my utopian dreams, um, and still remain a faithful disciple of Christ when all that seems to happen to me is disappointment, how does this happen? And then Jesus says to you, because you don't understand what it's all about, that's why. This is not here to create a utopia. This is not here to create a great kingdom. This is not here to reestablish, for instance, for ourselves, medieval Christendom. 
this that was not exactly you know the the ideal moment. I know there was a book by and Walsh way way back called this the thirteenth the greatest of all centuries. Well, not so sure about that. You know the great papal wars against the Hohenstaufens of Germany, which ravaged Europe, bankrupt the papacy. Um, the blood of the of the of the uh, of the Albigensian Crusade and all of this kind of stuff. Then that those are the glory days. I mean, I I don't I don't think so. I think that the glory days live within the living souls of human beings. I think the glory days are deep deep within the human person. And I think that certainly there are moments of grandeur and moments of glory. Um, you know, the 13th century, the age of Francis, the age of Dominic, the coming of, the coming of the proclamation of the gospel in a more in a more vernacular sort of way for the ordinary urban dwellers of 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 of, of, of Europe. Um, but there is no such thing as a golden past. There is no such thing. You know, this idea, we're going to retrieve the past, that's what we're going to, and then everything is going to be all right. No, that's not exactly true. That's exactly what Martin Luther did. He went back, he was going to retrieve the past of primitive Christianity. Well, it was the 1500s, and there was no way he was going to get back to the primitive Christianity. So what happened is he created an, altern- an alternative to the Christian faith, which had all the earmarks of the 16th century. Um, that's what happens when you do that. You, 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 you reconstruct the past in such a way that it, it is kind of a utopian vision of the present. And, when, and I've talked about this before, this whole utopian idea, and I'm kind of stuck on that, I guess. But, but you know, it comes from two Greek words, otupos, which means nowhere. It's written. I mean, Thomas More invents the word in his in 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 his book Utopia, um, as kind of a satire. As kind of you know, see how ridiculous this is. There is no such thing as a perfect world. And the more you seek it, the crazier you get. And and we certainly see that in many of the great movements. You know, look at the Soviet Union. We're going to create a workers' paradise. No, you didn't. You created a workers' hell. Um, and in the Third Reich, we're going to create the master race. No, you didn't create the master race. You self-destructed. None of these things ever work because they're not possible, because it's not real, because it is not part of the human experience. It's not part of the work of redemption, of salvation. And so when Jesus says, well, then, then, then he says to them, you, know, you, you kind of have this all wrong. Here's what it is. You, you come to serve others. You come to love others. No one in this world can live without some kind of love for others without basically having some form of mental illness because that's the nature and structure of the human person. And I think that we know that part of the element of human love is also the element of human sacrifice. If we can say that parents love their children, let's ask what they give up for their children. And it's kind of surprising. The time, the affection, the monetary goods, all of that kind of stuff, pretty amazing what parents give up for the sake of their children. What about people giving up for the, in friendship, for you know, willing to take on sufferings for others so that their lives might be better and more whole? That's part of love. That's part of friendship. That's part of life. 
And without that kind of idea of self-sacrifice for the sake of others, then we don't know who Jesus is. Because that's what his life was all about. That's what his life on the cross was all about. It was the total empty himself for the love of others. I know that I went into a church one time, and uh, there was one of those modern uh, um, semi-resurrection crucifixes or something in there. And, and uh, someone said, yeah, we, 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 we did that because we got sick of the, uh, of the, you know, the masochistic crucifix. And, uh, and I thought to myself, oh my gosh, what an awful thing to say. What a horrible thing to say that the crucifix is a sign of masochism. It isn't. It is the most perfect sign of generous love that there is. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe you can say, well, um, you know, the, 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 risen, the risen Christ crucified, it's not an illegitimate image. It really isn't. But to do it for the wrong reasons is that somehow or other the, the only power, the only inner dynamic of human life that there is is in rising from the dead. It's not in the struggles and the blood and the guts of the world in which we live and the struggle and the strife for people to care for each other, to love each other, to give a sacrifice for each other. This is the drama of the Christian life. It's not the ultimate victory. That's what we look forward to and that's what we hope for and that's what the Lord promised us. But if we want to grasp the guts of the faith... We don't kind of, kind of circle around utopian dreams. We enter into the real basic human elements of, of grief, of joy, of sadness, of love, of disappointment, of all those kinds of things. And Jesus says to us as we undertake this journey, can you drink this cup? Can you have this baptism that I'm going to? Isn't that exactly what he experiences? He loves his disciples, and yet what happens to them? They, they abandon him, and yet he gives his life for them anyway. What about, you know, the love that he has for his mother as he entrusts her to St. John at the foot of the cross, the, the, the agony that must be going on in everybody's heart, and yet this is part of the generosity of Jesus. This is part of what he is. This is part of the human struggle of the one who joined himself to us that he might come to understand these things in us more deeply and more profoundly. These are the things that this gospel wants us to look to. It seems neat and clean. We want, we want, a, big, we want a big play and a kingdom that looks a lot to us like an earthly kingdom. Well, you know, can, can you get there the way I'm going to get there? Oh, yeah, we can. Well, we'll see. You're going to. That's what you're going to go through, but that's not what you're expecting. And, then, and after all, when it's all said and done, it is all in surrender to the will and the person of the Father. And then when the others hear this, they don't say, oh, poor benighted souls, the poor, you know, delusional creatures. No, they get upset about it because that's on their mind too. And maybe they're just not saying it, but they're thinking, where am I going to end up in all this? What am I going to get out of all of this? And, and it's going to go on like that. And then Jesus calmly says to them, he could say to them, I'm not going to say anything to you. Stick with me and watch what happens from now on until the end and see what you learn about this question that you just asked. But he's kinder than that. And he said, you know, 
the pagans lord it over other people. They're the ones looking for power. We see that certainly in the, in the ghastly machinations of our own government, you know, where power eclipses everything, any sense of goodness, of decency, of faith, of anything else. But that's not going to happen among you, he says. Well, no. Anyone who wants to become great among you must be your servant. And anyone who wants to be first among you must be slave to all. Exactly. We must serve the needs, not, not just the needs, but the hearts and the souls of other people. That's what we're here for. Mothers and fathers do that with their children. Children can do that with their elderly parents. Friends can do that and must do that for each other to truly be friends. That, that re- human brothers and sisters must do that for one another um, as part of their solidarity as one, as a family, as a whole. No, watch the Christ. When we ourselves fall into the James and John problem, simply watch the Christ. Follow him. See what he does and see where he leads you. At the end of the gospel, then, there's a problematic word. And as said, Jesus said, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Fine. That's a key to us to understand how we find wholeness in this life is by giving up of ourselves, certainly, to others. But to give his life as a ransom for many. And this becomes, in a way, honestly, problematic. The very use of the word ransom. Because... We get into this a certain amount, and, and this is certainly from, from the Christology of St. Inselm, which we have to take rather circumspectly, that somehow or other that God demanded the death of his son as a ransom for the offense against him by sinful humanity. Well, we can't really say theologically, well, you know, St. Inselm was wrong. But we can say that that's probably not a very solid view of it, at least according to Scripture and at least according to the life of Christ. For if, in fact, Jesus needed to ransom us and to satisfy justice to his Father, then the cross does become a cruel and vicious sign. It becomes not a sign of, of not a sign of the masochism of the Son, but a sign of the harshness of the Father. And that really we cannot let stand in the biblical heart of the faith and in the deepest spiritual life of the faith. For it is simply a word that is used to show that people are rescued. Rescue is a better word than ransom. And actually the word they use from ransom in a way can be used that way as well. People were ransomed from Egypt, you know, and and so on and so forth. That's not how the scriptures really unfolded to us. When we say that the crucifix is a sign of ultimate love of one person for others, we can't then turn around and say it's a juridical um, settling of the books with an unforgiving father. We can't do that. And certainly the story of the prodigal son moves us radically away from that kind of an interpretation of the father's sense of justice and the father's sense of mercy. 
I think that what when we come to this word, we simply mean, we simply mean rescue, and we don't mean purchase. And so that man did not come to serve, but to be served, and to, so to give his life to rescue us. From what? To rescue us from the darkness, to rescue us from the inner darkness, that inner darkness that draws us closer to the kingdom of darkness than it does to the kingdom of light. How can you be so infinitely loved and yet at the same time abandon yourself to the powers of Satan? How can you be loved at such a cost and such an expense? I know that for, for many people, they, we can say, you know, I know people I would give up my life for. I think that most people have that thought some way, shape, or form in some of their human relationships within families, friendships, and so forth. Of course, of course, that's, that's the generous love of Jesus Christ, and, and hopefully we could emulate that love in our lives. But... But that's what it's all about. It's all about the giving of the self for the sake of the other. That's how the scripture uses this word ransom. Exchange. I will exchange my suffering for your well-being. I will exchange my life for your life. Maximilian Kolbe, for instance. I will exchange, for instance, my penances for, for your happiness and your well-being. And certainly we see this in St. Rose of Lima, and certainly we see this in Therese of Lisieux. Um, we see it in the great penitential lives of, of many of the saints in the life of St. Francis, until finally he, he experiences that excruciating union of God and himself, of Christ and himself, in, in, the, uh, in, in the stigmata. We, we see all of this as part of the drama of the Christian story, but in none of it is it about glory in the kingdom that we are in right now. And the great saints and the great that have been people of power and of wealth are the ones who have been exceedingly giving of themselves, exceedingly generous. And people like Elizabeth of Hungary, people like King Henry II, um, people like many of the great kings and queens, for instance, of people, fabulously wealthy people who expended everything for the sake of the kingdom of God in their lives. It is a religion of giving and not of receiving. It is a religion of openness to the Lord and not of acquisition of the Lord. It is a religion of a journey, a pilgrimage into the ultimate kingdom of God, which we arrive at through the shedding of everything that is of us for the sake of others, for the sake of another. With this in our minds, let us walk along with James and John and let us pray and let us pray for all those who share their vision that they may experience a deep conversion and that they may truly then find themselves able to drink the cup and to be baptized in the baptism of the Lord. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. So
情。